0: Hi there, I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week, designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of August 14th, 2023. In the news. The federal government is rolling back some restrictions on Colorado River water after a wet winter boosted reservoir levels, but the city of Phoenix plans to remain under a water alert, Catherine Davis Young reports.
1: Phoenix entered stage 1 of its drought plan last summer, citing shortages on the Colorado River. Stage 1 doesn't require customers to cut back, but Cynthia Campbell with the water department says drought awareness campaigns have made an impact even as temperatures
2: have soared this summer. We've not seen a commensurate demand on water. In fact, we still haven't hit the peaks that we saw in 2020, and we largely attribute that to our customers' understanding what conservation means.
1: Campbell says the Colorado River drought is far from over, and the city wants customers to continue to conserve. In coming months, the Water Department plans to launch new incentives for efficient toilets and turf replacement. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix
0: in Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. It's been more than 80 years since the first Navajo Code Talkers joined the Marines and helped craft an unbreakable code used to transmit messages during World War II. Gabriel Piatrazio reports, with so few of the original Code Talkers left, it's now up to their descendants to carry on the legacy.
3: Standing in front of a 16-foot-tall bronze statue of a Navajo Code Talker at Wesley Boland Plaza, Shannon Begay began Monday's observance with a popular Dene prayer.
0: In beauty, I walk with beauty before me. I walk with beauty behind me. I walk with beauty above me. I walk with beauty around me. I walk, it has become beauty
3: again. She's the eldest granddaughter of Thomas Begay, one of only three Navajo co-talkers still alive today.
2: When I look at my grandpa and the perseverance and the ambition And the resilience that he has, it makes me want to keep going forward and know that there's no barriers or boundaries.
3: Thomas couldn't attend the city of Phoenix's celebration of Navajo Code Talkers Day this year. At 98 years old, his health makes it difficult to travel from his home in New Mexico. But his service contributions and those of his brothers in arms were celebrated not just in Phoenix, but in ceremonies across the state of Arizona, from Flagstaff to the Navajo capital of Window Rock. For Shannon, that means sharing her grandfather's life story. Born from humble beginnings into a family of sheep herders at a traditional Hogan dwelling near Two Wells, New Mexico, in 1927, Thomas would eventually enlist in the U.S. Marine Corps at the age of 16. Using their Navajo language, Thomas and his young cohorts, often referred to as the First 29, devised an unbreakable code which would be taught to some 400 Navajo.
2: These young men that went to these schools were not allowed to speak their own language and were punished for that and yet they enlisted and they were asked to come up with this code.
3: Laura Toe, a former Navajo Nation poet laureate and descendant of Navajo code talker Benson Toe, interviewed 20 of her father's combat buddies for Code Talker Stories, an essay-style book she offered and published more than a decade ago.
2: I think one of the things that I took from my research is how precious a language is and how it was used to help save America.
3: Zani Gorman is an academic authority on the Navajo Code Talkers history and daughter of Dr. Carl Gorman, another one of the original 29 Navajo Code Talkers. She said respect and recognition for the Code took time, even when the Top Secret and Classified program was still being developed in the Marine Corps.
2: There's actually one document where a commanding officer said he didn't have any faith in this Indian gibberish.
3: That same Indian gibberish actually ended up helping the US and its allies defeat the Axis powers in critical battles like Iwo Jima, where Bigay had been deployed with the signal company of the 5th Marine Division. It was their code used to transmit encrypted messages that secured victory during the Second World War and eventually respect within the Marines was earned. They gave the
2: Navajo code talkers their own MOS number, which is significant because they recognized the value of the training that these men were given as a specialty.
3: For descendants like Gorman and Toe, Shannon Begay understands the role and responsibility she must play in preserving her grandfather's story and those of his fallen comrades.
2: It's important for me as a descendant to carry on my grandfather's legacy.
3: Although her grandfather wasn't present in Phoenix on Monday, Thomas Begay is still alive and well enough to share his own message with the world on social media.
2: Today is a national Navajo court talker day. Honor them and salute them. Simplify.
3: Gabriel Terrazio, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news. Aging in America is expensive. According to a 2023 report from the National Council on Aging, millions of Americans either have no assets, are struggling financially, or have lost financial ground in the last few years. Kathy Ritchie talked to one senior who is figuring out how to get by.
2: My name is Natalie Ball. I live in Sun City and I've been here in Arizona since 2016.
1: Ball's retired now, but before the 75-year-old said goodbye to the daily grind, she was an x-ray technician.
2: And I was an x-ray tech in New York. And when I left New York in 08, I was making $40 an hour.
1: It was a pretty good income, she says. Before leaving New York, she sold her home. It was her nest egg and paid cash for her condo here. Today, she's living off her Social Security.
2: Now I, bring, I get $1,500 a month.
1: Ball has no pension and no 401k. And
2: not even a husband to help, not that they help any other way. Ball is like
1: millions of older adults around the country who live on a fixed income. But she's one of the luckier ones. Her home is paid off and she's in fairly good health for now. The fact is, someone turning 65 today has an almost 70% chance of needing some kind of long term care. And that's an expense typically not covered by Medicare. All it takes is a medical emergency or a dementia diagnosis to lose everything. But back to Ball. Today, she's managing to make ends meet.
2: I have the APS utility bill discount. I have Southwest Gas discount. I have an EPCOR water rebate.
1: Ball recently took advantage of another discount, the FCC's Affordable Connectivity Program, also known as the Internet.
2: Because I haven't had internet since I was working. When I retired, that's an ex- a luxury expense for a senior. So is food for some older adults, and that's where
1: Julie Ash comes into this story. Ash works at the Banner Olive Branch Senior Center in Sun City. Ash's job is to help seniors like Ball access these programs,
2: including SNAP. So if you want to apply for food stamps, SNAP, either you put yourself through an 81-page paper application, And that is just the start. Because once you submit it, you have to provide verification documents for everything. And I think that's really the gotcha. The process of applying for food stamps, if anybody says it's easy, it's not. It's a very long interview process to get people through.
1: Ash says she's had older adults come in and hand her the 81-page application because it's just too difficult. So she hops online, which requires internet, something not all older adults have to help speed up the process.
2: I, I probably in the last four years done over a thousand SNAP applications. Yeah. Ash says there is a simplified application, which is an improvement. But they haven't integrated that online. So it's a seven or eight page document that then you must fax in or take it to the office.
1: But perhaps the biggest deterrent for some seniors is not the stigma of SNAP or the 81 pages, though both are obstacles. Rather,
2: it's what you get. The minimum is, is $23 a month. What? Yes.
1: That's all you get on your debit card is 23 bucks.
2: Yes. Now it can roll over month to month. So you can roll it. So if you but so they're like, why do I want to spend this time doing that?
1: What Ash reassuringly tells them is that it costs nothing to
2: apply. And once you've got the EBT card, that is your ticket to having no income verification required for APS discounts, Southwest Gas. Any of those discount programs, you show that and you are golden.
1: The hard truth, though, is that these programs are band-aids for gunshot wounds. Ball was the exception. She owns her home. Many of the older adults coming to ASH are on the cusp of homelessness. Rent is going up, so are eviction rates. And there isn't an adequate safety net to catch them all. Kathy Ritchie, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In education news, the Levine Elementary School District
0: is under scrutiny after a video was released showing a superintendent physically restraining a fifth-grade student. As Bridget Dowd reports, the student's mother says other staff members stood by and watched it happen.
4: Emotions ran high Thursday night at a meeting of the district's governing board. Danielle Jordan testified that in April of this year, her son was suspended, but she was not notified. The next day, he came to school and was followed to the office and grabbed by academic superintendent Kathy Davis. Jordan says her son was not a threat.
0: My baby 10 years old. He's 5'3". Size 10 shoe. He could have took her if he wanted to. Let's be honest. He's a big kid. He didn't push her. He didn't even elbow her. He didn't fight back.
4: The school district put out a statement saying they have determined that it was an improper restraint and the administrator is no longer working for the district. Jordan's lawyer wrote a letter to the Maricopa County attorney asking that the incident be referred for criminal prosecution. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. It's not just saguaros. The heat is withering all types of plants in Phoenix. Here's the show co-host Lauren Gilger
5: it's been a record hot summer here in the Southwest and across the globe. And here in the Phoenix metro area, we are watching the effects of that take a toll on everything from our air conditioning bills to the people who work and live outside to the desert fauna and flora that surrounds us. You've probably seen pictures of the Sonoran Desert's iconic saguaro cacti falling over from the heat. And those are plants born of this desert environment. But now we're also seeing trees with scorched leaves, black burn marks on succulents shriveled up bushes all over the city so let's turn now to an expert on the plants of the sonoran desert to find out what's happening and why melanie melanie Lucek is the director of science and education at the mcdowell sonoran conservancy in north scottsdale and she joins us now good morning melanie
4: Good morning. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for
5: coming on. So tell us first what you're seeing on the preserve. You're a little bit outside of the kind of urban heat island bubble, but what's it looking like there with this kind of extreme heat?
4: Yeah, we are. Um, we, we have seen evidence of stress on the desert plants you know, for years throughout this drought, and it, you know, just anecdotally, it looks a little worse every year, mm. but we're not seeing the toppling saguaros in, in quite the dramatic way that you are seeing them you know, in the Phoenix area.
5: Yeah. So if you're a little insulated from this kind of thing up north, a little bit out, outside of the city, tell us about what you're seeing in the city and your concerns there.
4: Yeah. Um, a lot of the same observations that people from the Desert Botanical Garden and South Mountain and, and the neighborhoods have have made, um, you know, saguaros uh, toppled and and sort of weakened um, in the middle of, of the plant. Uh, a lot of plants just not making it you know no matter what you do the scorched leaves um all of that you know we see minor versions of that in the mcdowell sonoran preserve and areas like that Mm -hmm. you know because we're as you said we're just outside the city we're slightly higher elevation but i really would consider what we're seeing in phoenix the canary in the coal mine
5: the canary in the coal mine so are you concerned that in the future you will be seeing this kind of thing on the preserve
4: Yes. Yeah, hmm. temperatures are predicted to rise. Um I know one estimate has uh, the summer high or the summer um, average high at 114 by uh, you know t- uh, 2,100 wow. rather than 104 as it is now, and if we can st- continue to see temperature rises like that, it's it's going to have a radiating effect outward.
5: Wow! So tell us why. I mean, you you're an expert on these kinds of plants. Like, why can't they extend withstand this kind of heat? I mean,
4: they're they're made for the desert. They're made for this kind of heat, right? Yeah, well, they adapted to conditions you know that uh, that are no longer here. Mm. Um, the climate, I mean the really the combination of of climate change and the heat island effect are are changing you know the temperatures so rapidly that they're struggling to adapt. Uh, One of the things that really affects succulent plants, you know, cacti and other succulents is the nighttime temperatures. Uh, They breathe at night, essentially, they open their stoma, which are like their pores, and that's when they breathe out the oxygen and breathe in the carbon dioxide. And when the, the, the nighttime temperatures remain too high, they are triggered not to open their stoma, Hmm. because it is unsafe for them to do so. And so like a friend of mine says, they hold their breath all summer.
5: Oh, that's a sad phrase to think of it that way. So how does the lack of monsoon rain affect things? We also haven't really seen much of that this summer
4: yeah well um that's another thing that sonoran desert plants are adapted to especially you know the the great saguaro that is is the you know emblematic of the sonoran desert that only occurs here because of both the winter and the summer rains uh the summer rains cool things off so they get that little respite and when that, you know, stretches out, when that heat stretches out, they have to hold their breath longer mm-hmm. um, at night and, uh, and it also, you know, provides them moisture. Um, and when plants adapt to a certain type of conditions or a certain range of conditions, it takes them a while to readapt to um, a different range of conditions and you see mortality during that adaption period.
5: Is there anything you can do on the preserve or people can even do in their yards to protect these plants, or is it just a matter of the,
4: the, it's too hot? Uh, there's a lot that we can do. Hmm. Um, one of them is to uh, to plant hardy desert adapted plants in areas that um, are denuded of plants like you know areas of central phoenix uh one of the best ways to battle the heat island effect is with vegetation mm-hmm. um another thing is you know everything that you would do to uh to help reduce the effects of climate change um you know those things we we all need to continue doing those things like you know driving less carpooling. Uh, Uh, You know, all of that. Um, Helping organizations that are battling the heat island effect. That's something that we can do uh, that has more of an immediate effect. You know, we we really should be doing all of it, you know, to to help um, decrease climate change and heat island effect. But the heat island effect, we can have more of an immediate effect. an immediate impact on that. Uh, Arizona State University has um, a lot of innovative research that's going on, just paying attention to that and, and what's coming out of that uh, mm-hmm. and what we can do.
5: Let me ask you in the last minute or so here, Melanie, just a little bit about what it's like to watch this happen for you as someone who I know loves the Sonoran Desert and, and you know, has really dedicated their life to it.
4: Uh, it's painful, Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I really feel for all of it. Um, and I know millions of people love, you know, even if they don't know every single plant name or, or Mm -hmm. whatever, they, they love going out, you know, hiking and seeing, um, the biodiversity and seeing the animals that are brought in when you have a biodiverse, you know, plant landscape. Um, and, and it's heartbreaking, but I know there's hope. Uh, oh, and uh, one more thing that we can all do is plant native plants. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll leave I had there. to throw that in there.
5: That's a good one. Melanie Lucek, Director of Science and Education at the McDowell Sonoran Conservancy, joining us. Melanie, thank you so much. Thank you. In science news, here's Nicholas Gerbis.
6: Plastic production has swelled from 1.5 million tons in 1950 to 390 million tons in 2021. Today, microplastics are found on land, sea, and air, and humans take them in through food, breathing, and body cavities. But what about fully enclosed organs, like the heart? New research offers some clues. The authors of a new pilot study in the American Cancer Society journal Environmental Science and Technology found tens to thousands of individual microplastic pieces in most tissue samples they looked at. The study examined heart tissue samples taken from 15 people during cardiac surgeries, as well as pre- and post-operative blood specimens from half the participants. Researchers found nine types of plastic, including PET, PVC, and acrylic, ranging in size from a dust moat to a sand grain. More research is needed, but the results suggest at least some of the microplastics might be left behind following surgeries. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: And finally, Infanteras News. An orchestra in Tucson is partnering with Banner's Alzheimer's Institute to create a special rehearsal performance for people dealing with memory loss issues. From the Fronteras desk there, Elisa Resnick has more. The event is slated for this
1: Saturday afternoon in downtown Tucson. Tucson Pops orchestra conductor Chris Dodge says the event coincides with World Alzheimer's Month. He says it aims to make a performance space that's accessible to people living with memory loss diseases like dementia, along with their family members and caregivers. It's a free performance, but organizers say the event has limited seating. Those wanting to attend are asked to make reservations ahead of time by visiting the Tucson Pops Orchestra website or calling. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson.